As a sales manager, you are judged by the performance of your team and you're praised when they do well. But one thing that you've not been able to figure out is how to get everyone on your team consistently hitting quota every single month. On the Snack Size Sales Podcast, we discuss the science of selling STEM. Sales leadership in the science, technology, engineering, and manufacturing fields is difficult. You will learn from sales managers just like you that will give you actionable insights and tips on how to develop as a leader and achieve your revenue targets every single month. So pop your headphones in and get ready to listen to my guests today. They will give you information and inspiration to ensure that you have actionable insights that you can put into place today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Selling STEM. Today, I am so delighted to have my colleague and friend, Amy Franco. How are you, Amy? I am great. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. Let me tell you guys just a little bit about Amy. She is a keynote speaker, sales strategist, and author specializing in B2B sales and sales leadership development. She works with professional services, insurance, and technology organizations to accelerate their growth. With over 20 years of client-facing sales experience, Amy began her career with global companies such as IBM and Lenovo before pivoting into entrepreneurship. Her book of business includes some of the world's most recognizable brands, and her book, The Modern Seller, is an Amazon bestseller and was named a top sales book by Top Sales World. She is recognized by LinkedIn as a top sales voice. Oh my goodness. You've worked with some big companies. You have a book. I mean, you're doing all of these amazing things. How did you start and how did you get to where you are today? So as I kind of think back on my career, so if I, if I take this maybe a little bit pre-career start, I'm the oldest of five. I have four younger sisters, and there is a 10-year age difference between me and my youngest sister. So if you were to interview them on this podcast, they, they might tell you I was a bit bossy growing up. But I just like to think of it as leadership, right? <laughs> that was just one of my leadership skills from, from a very young age. And as I look back on my career and especially my leadership journey, entrepreneurial journey, I think I always had something inside of me that I was going to either lead something or start something. And I don't really have a, um, I don't have a, it just kind of was always in my gut, right? I played a lot of sports as a kid. I was very competitive. I loved school. I loved learning. So I think a lot of those things just combined to help me kind of on that path as I went through high school and college and and into my career. So my career actually started in technology. For the first 10 years of my career, I was in, I got my first inside sales job coming right out of college and I stayed in technology for about 10 years. And then I finished that technology stint, if you will, working for IBM and Lenovo and I had sales facing roles. And then about 15 years ago, I took a big pivot into entrepreneurship. It's actually 15 years this year, which is crazy to believe, but I had always wanted to start something or lead something. And I had the opportunity to get into a different field, learning and development, and to kind of hone my entrepreneurial chops in that space. It was a big jump and probably one of those lessons, Wesleyan, where it's like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was a good thing because had I really 
thought about all the unknowns, it may have stopped me from jumping in. But that's what I did 15 years ago, and that whole journey has really grown and evolved over time. And now what it looks like is um, I work uh, with sales teams, CEOs, sales leaders, sales teams, on a variety of different sales problems that they're trying to solve. And also one of my favorite things, which is skill development with those teams. So that's a little bit of the journey in a nutshell to unpack. I love it. So let's kind of rewind and go back to the beginning of your career when you first stepped into sales, because a lot of people that I've spoken to that started in sales, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, they had a really, really good defined path into how their development, if you will. They actually did real sales training back in the day. (laughs) So tell me when you started in sales and you were working as inside sales, what was your your trajectory to, you know, your first 90 days, first year? What was that like? Yeah, so um, I'll I'll back up just one step from that and kind of what sort of propelled my interest in sales. So when I was in college, um, I'll call it interning. But mostly my summer jobs. I worked at a tech company. I grew up in Cleveland and I would live at home during the summers. And I answered phones and did different jobs within a tech company. And I got to know people that were on the sales team. And honestly, they always looked like they were the ones having the most fun. They were the ones leaving the office to go on appointments. They were the ones who were making it happen. And while I can't say that I purposefully pursued a sales career because of that, I think of it as an influence on me, you know, even to this day. But my very first job was an inside sales role. I worked for an IBM business partner. I'm going to date myself and tell you that I found the job posting on Monster. I applied for this job sight unseen, went and interviewed for it. And I'm still friends with the two people that interviewed me to this day. Actually, the one guy that interviewed me is my husband's best friend, best like childhood friend. So back to the question that you actually asked me, which was, you know, what was that first, you know, 90 days or a year like? You know, I will say that I didn't have formal onboarding sales training at that point in my career. My learning came from a couple of places. I was fortunate enough to be paired up with a couple of really successful outside sellers who really taught me a lot of their skills. And I was really someone who, um, you know, I was tenacious and always wanted to learn. So I was always trying to figure out the best way to do things. And I spent about a year in that role. And I took a little bit of a pivot into more of an IT role before coming back into sales. But I would say early in my career, it was kind of self-led, which as I look back on that, as I guide companies today, I'm very prescriptive in helping them when they're looking for onboarding and hiring, very prescriptive in how we do that. So it isn't something that's just left to chance. Whereas like if I, I had certain qualities and went after it, but the person sitting next to me maybe needed a little bit more guidance and there wasn't something formal, we could have totally different outcomes. Hmm. Yeah, that I mean, and I think that one thing that you mentioned is really so important. It's having that mentor, somebody within the company that's not necessarily in a leadership role that's like, hey, new person, I'm going to bring you along. And a lot of times when I'm working with companies and, you know, they have people, they're like, oh, they want to get into leadership, but we don't really have a leadership development program. I'm like, have them mentor somebody, right? Like, let them try, get started on that. So you went from sales into the technical realm 
And when you went into the technical realm and then jumped back into sales, do you feel that having that technical background helped propel your career in sales? It did. And I'm really glad I took the detour into a little bit more of some IT focused roles. I was an IT consultant and I did some programming work, which is not what I went to school for at all, by the way. I have an English and a communications degree. But I took this little detour and I'm really glad that I did it for a couple reasons. It gave me a lot more credibility when I went into my next roles at IBM. And it also taught me some things that I didn't want to do for a long-term career. I'm so glad that I did it, but I knew that that wouldn't be a long-term choice for me. It did help my credibility tremendously though, when I jumped back into client-facing sales. Mm, yeah, a lot of times, you know, there are people who, especially in these really technical fields, it's like, well, I'm an engineer and I'm IT or I'm a chemist or I'm this or I'm that. And I want to get into sales, but I'm not really like that true salesperson, right? And so I always tell them, I'm like, but you know, there's products so well. And no, there is no better salesperson than somebody who knows that product inside and out. What's interesting about that is I also work with, um, some of my book of business is with um, what I would consider to be more technical fields in, like I have some public accounting clients, things along that line. So I do work with organizations who have their technical experts who are also asked to do some type of selling or business development. And we have very similar conversations, which is if you care and want to solve a customer's problem, and you're willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and dig and figure out what the problem is, you are helping them solve a problem, you know, go after an opportunity. And I agree, like you're really well positioned to do it. You have to be willing to get uncomfortable and learn the skills of sales and business development, combine them with your technical expertise. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you then, you said about 15 years ago, decided to dip your toe into this ocean of entrepreneurship. <laughs> what gave yep. you that gumption to say, okay, I want to strike it out on my own? Oh, you know, it was probably a couple of things. Like I had been thinking about it for a long time and I didn't know what form it was going to take. So it was probably a couple of things. I'd had a couple good sales years and was able to stash away some money to live on, right? Because it does take time to get it started up. So I'm a planner. So for those people out there listening or watching that are planners, I'm, I'm with you. So I had some money, had some expenses socked away. And then it was a combination of, you know, some opportunity. Like I was able to be a part of an organization that worked in the learning and development space. And I was able to cultivate my network, which was really helpful. And you know what? I would also say I had a ton of family support. My husband was super supportive and he was like, you know, you're not going to know unless you try and you got to get out there, try it for a year or two. If it's something that doesn't work out, you can always go and get another sales role, but you're never going to know if you didn't try. And I remember really specifically thinking, I was 31 at the time, and I remember thinking, I don't want to look back in 10 years and say, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, that I wish I would have given it a shot, even if it didn't work out. So I really remember that, those moments when I was thinking, oh, should I or shouldn't I? Mm. 
the feeling of being a brand new entrepreneur and taking that leap. And I do think that one thing that benefits us that have done sales and move into entrepreneurship, we kind of have a little bit of that innate business sense, right? Yeah. We know how to hustle. <laughs> so we know how to cold yeah. call and knock on doors <laughs> and say, okay, I know I got to bring some revenue in if I want to bring it, push it out. So when you think about your first, let's say five years of entrepreneurship, what would you say your biggest aha kind of moment was those first five years? Yeah. So I think this will tie in really nicely to what you just said, which one thing that I really took away was the realization that my ability to sell and uncover problems was my number one skill. Beyond the expertise of my you know, consulting skill set, if you will, that ability to sell, find problems, have conversations, that has risen above the other skills. Um, and then I would say maybe secondarily, it's this combination of thinking big picture of what you'd like that five-year chunk to look like, but also it's doing the work every day. It's one foot in front of the other, not unlike a leadership journey, like someone who's listening here that maybe aspires to be a leader or they want to build their leadership skills. It's one skill at a time, one conversation at a time. And then you look back over five years and you've created this whole body of work and hopefully a body of success. Hmm. Yeah. You know, when you, the look back, it's like, well, hey, you know, huh, I'm here now, but what I wish I would have known and what I didn't realize I was really good at back then. And so a lot of times when you kind of step into that leadership role, it's almost like being an entrepreneur. Yeah. You have a company that's still paying your salary, but you got to get all these people on the ship. You have to figure out how to make them perform. So you decided that you were going to take your sales skills that you had along with your consulting background and make a nice little marriage, <laughs> right? <laughs> and tell us about that marriage that you made with those two different aspects of your background. Yeah, I think they are, um, they're so importantly tied together. And then, then I'll tie them to a third thing, which is more leadership oriented. It's almost as if you're building two sets of skills, but they complement each other. I am still a student of sales and everything related to sales, even though I've been in the field, you know, for most of my adult career. So continuing to build skills in the sales area and also continuing to stay well-read and build those consulting skills. Because in the end, what people are really paying for, they're paying for my expertise and they're also paying for progress and results. So whatever somebody's expertise is, whatever your consulting or your technical expertise is, think of the sales elements of it as a complementary piece of what you do and find those ways to build those skills. Even if you don't go into a sales type of field within your organization, you're always selling ideas and you're always, you're going to have to sell your team on things when you are in a leadership role. So those skills are very transferable across all different types of disciplines. And then the one last thing that I'll share, which is more leadership oriented, and I, I didn't share this in my intro, but I am also a board chair of the Girl Scouts of Ohio's Heartland, which is one of 110 councils within the Girl Scouts. And that has been a really, um, it's been an awesome journey. And I've learned so much about leadership 
And especially, you know, you have volunteer teams and you're working with leaders across all different types of disciplines. So the things that you learn in your role as a leader, you can transfer into other areas of your life. Like if you're passionate about nonprofits or you're passionate about coaching your kid's team, whatever it is, they're all transferable. Mm. There were two key things that you said that really resonated with me. And one is being a lifelong learner. I actually was uh, recently chatting with someone who was like an SEO expert and she's been doing SEO since the 90s. Like, did we even know what SEO was in the 90s? And she was like, yeah, I just went to a two day SEO class. And so to think that somebody who is like literally a matriarch in this field can still get skills today as leaders, as salespeople, we have to constantly develop ourselves. We have to read, we have to listen, we have to invest in ourselves. And the second key thing that you said is your leadership shines, not just professionally, but it spills over personally too. And so those initiatives, those things that you're passionate about, even you can show up as a leader there. You can show that, hey, I can mentor a group of Girl Scouts, or I can do this in my local organization to show my leadership skills, because at the end of the day, all of that flows into how you grow as a professional. Absolutely. And I want to kind of tie that into something. So one of the mentors that I work with talks about this idea of, it's not just your like we tend to compartmentalize things or bucketize things like this is my professional life in this area. This is my family life or my personal life in this other area. And so much of our personal and professional lives are just completely intertwined. And that's what I love about the study and the practice of leadership is that it goes really fluidly between both. And then the other thing I wanted to come back to that you said about the lifelong learning, you talk about the self-development piece of it in I love the concept of starting where you are, which can be really uncomfortable and painful. And it's like, we're all of us type A overachievers out there. You know, if you're one of those, if you're watching or listening, (laughs) but it could be really, really uncomfortable to start with where you are and to be bad at something before getting good at it. And that's something that I've had to learn to embrace that I'm going to suck at something for a while before I get good at it. And you got to stick with it. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, like when I think about, uh, this is not something I, I talk about often, but when I got married, I did not know how to cook because my mom and her family, she was like number nine of 14. And so she had to cook for everybody. And so she said, I am not raising my daughter to cook for a man. Literally, that is what she told me. So when I got married, I didn't know how to cook. And I remember the first meal I made for my husband, I was just so proud of myself. It was like, um, it was some chicken and it just looked so beautiful, brown on the outside, but it was raw on the inside. And he was just like, oh, it's so good, honey. But now, so many years later, my cooking is coveted. Like people come to my house to eat because I am such a good cook. I wanted to be good at cooking. So I took classes, I read books, I got mentors, and I said, this is something I wanna do. I wanna be really good at it. And no matter what that thing is that you wanna be good at, you have to invest in yourself. And I think that so many times, especially when we work within companies, we're like, well, if the company won't pay for it, then I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my money. And you know what? The best leaders, the best salespeople say, you know, I made some commission. I made a bonus. I'm going to go take this class. Right. And I think that it is so that is what those type A people, they want to be on top. And that is how they keep getting on top. 
Oh, I love it. Just the idea of being willing to invest in yourself. Just because your company won't pay for something, if you want it, figure out how to do it. And it says something, when I go to conferences, and I don't know if this has been your experience, but when I go to conferences and I meet people who are either, maybe they're entrepreneurs or maybe they're in an organization and their company wouldn't pay for it, but they're still there, they are the ones who are sitting in the front row. They are the ones who are taking notes in every single you know, virtual or in-person session, whatever it is. They're the ones that are getting more out of it because they invested in themselves. So I'm a huge believer. And I think that's a big part of my own success. I remember when I left my position at Lenovo and I was a newly minted entrepreneur, I hired a business coach. That was the first thing that I did. And it was a lot of money to me at the time. Looking back, it was not a huge investment, but like that accountability and, and making that investment in myself, that taught me early on to keep doing it. Keep going. So when you introduced yourself, you talked about um, what you guys do at your company, The Modern Seller. And one thing that you said was skill-based development, yes. which is something that I preach all the time. I say behavior-based skill development is really what moves the needle. So tell us more about what you do specifically there to help leaders, to help sellers with the skill-based development. Yeah. So normally when I'm working with an organization and I work primarily with mid-market sized organizations and in some larger organizations too. So I might be working with a CEO, depending on the company size, maybe a sales leader, a chief sales officer, or a VP of sales. And often they, they will come with, Hey, I'm trying to solve this with my team. And they will come to me with a certain problem. And it will usually fall into a couple of areas that, that cross over. One is they're looking for something structural, you know, within their organization to be optimized, to be repaired, whatever that is. It might be process, it might be onboarding and hiring, and any parts of the process that needs to be optimized. The other piece that always inevitably comes up is what you just mentioned is, I need to upskill my team. I need my team to be better at this, or I really need them to be better at that. And the approach that I have found to be really helpful, and you and I share this in common, I think, is that the data-driven approach to understanding the strengths and weaknesses of a sales team, both their leaders and their individual sales professionals, business developers, whatever the role is. I find that when sales leaders or leaders are willing to use data as part of the equation. It's not the entire thing, right? But it's part of the equation. They can make better decisions about what skills they need to invest in. And, and I can give you just a really quick example is uh, a lot of the times in, in the data work that I do, one of the biggest challenges I uncover almost every time is around qualifying opportunities. And the opportunities that are in a pipeline aren't nearly as uh, far along as what we'd like to think, right? <laughs> they're, they're more at the top of the funnel and not at the bottom. That's a symptom of the skill or the behavior-based skill of qualifying and unpacking what goes into that, the mindset pieces of it, the behavioral pieces of it. So that's just one example of a skill that I might work on with an organization that has a really wide impact across the whole sales team when people get that right. I love it. I love it. We're, you know, cut from the same cloth. 
I talk a lot about the leading and lagging indicators. Don't tell me my sales, don't tell me your sales are low. Yeah, your sales are low because they suck at qualifying and they're not hunting and they're not doing this and they're not doing those things, right? And so really getting to that root cause of what the issue is within the sales organization, within the sales team, the salesperson, the sales leader, it really helps propel the whole organization. And as you said, it's like, okay, we have structural issues, but we also have people issues. And when companies realize that you have both and they're willing to fix both, that's what really helps them jump to the top. Absolutely. And I think there's something that goes along with that too, which is the decision to accept the data and to say, all right, I'm going to look at this data in the spirit with which it has been given, which is we want to get better. We want to improve. There are always bright spots in a team or in an organization. We want to amplify those. And there's always those spots for improvement. And just being willing to be a little bit uncomfortable that says, you know what? I'm not awesome at this yet, but I'm willing to take that coaching. I'm willing to take that guidance, that mentorship and get better at it so I can be more successful. My team can be more successful. And for our leaders or aspiring leaders, a lot of this starts with you and your willingness to do it for yourself and for your team. Absolutely. And everybody knows I'm a data nerd. I'm a chemist. I love numbers. And so I love talk. We can really nerd out on these things all day. But as leaders, when you look at your team objectively and you don't think about, oh, I really like this person and they're trying really hard. But when you look at the data, you see these are the areas that they specifically need help with. And what I always tell people is like, oh, so are you saying that they're just not good at one, two, three things, so I should let them go? I'm like, nope. Everyone is redeemable. It's about how much time you as a leader want to put in to helping that person get from point A to point B. And that is 100% dependent on you, the leader, and your skill, as well as your effort to get that person moved up. Yeah. And you know, the, the other interesting piece to this, and I don't know if you run into this with the teams that you work with, you can have someone who's really skilled in a particular area. So I'll say, for example, like I get a lot of, you know, I need people on my team to be better at opportunity identification. I need them to be better hunters. In other words, the data will say that that isn't a strength for them. And sometimes what leaders will do is try to force fit somebody into a role that isn't a fit for them. Now there's some judgment call there to say, all right, let's talk about how we can develop you to be better at these skills versus this role just truly isn't a fit for you. Let's find the better fit. So, and that's as a leader, you'll probably run into that a lot. And Wesley, I would guess you probably have similar conversations with CEOs or sales leaders about that part of it too. Absolutely. I actually recently had somebody on my team and I'm like, yeah, this just, this isn't working well for you, right? Like this isn't the right role for you. And I'm like listening to her calls and watching her email. I'm like, I'm giving you everything that I'm giving everyone else, but it's not the right role for you. I think this is going to be better for you. And the person was so resistant. Like she was like, no, I want to do this. I really want to do this. And you have to make the decision as a leader, this person is really being hard-headed, if you will. <laughs> and they don't want to change. They're not willing to try a different role or to try something different. So at that point, as the leader, you have to make the determination. Do I continue to try to fit this round peg in a square hole? Do I let that person go? What do I have to do? And sometimes as leaders, we have to make those difficult decisions. 
There's a book that I'm reading right now. I'm actually reading it. So I mentioned I'm the a nonprofit board chair. I'm actually reading this book with my CEO and we're, we're doing, I'll, I'll call it a mini book club together. And we're reading Radical Candor, which I've personally found to be really helpful in, um, I've always struggled with those kind of critical conversations, you know, conflict avoidance, things like that. And I have a high level of awareness about that, that struggle. And so as a leader, where do you maybe struggle with some of those types of conversations or maybe some other skills that are a struggle? But that book has been exponentially helpful in understanding some leadership behaviors that might not be conducive. So like your example of that person, a leader who doesn't operate with that type of candor might leave that person in that role or not have that conversation with her. That conversation is really a gift, even if it's, you know, kind of a painful process. What that person does with it is ultimately their decision. But our role as a leader is to, you know, kind of compassionately and directly shine a light on it, even if it's uncomfortable for us to help them get better. Absolutely. And I mean, again, as a leader, you have to say the things that need to be said the right way. And then it's a transference of knowledge. Just like when you're selling, it's up to the other person to receive it or to not receive it. You cannot control what they will do with the information that you give them, right? And I think as leaders, that is a skill that has to be developed. It is a muscle because it is absolutely not easy, right? Absolutely not easy at all. No, and you'll probably have some muscle soreness after you uh, start practicing. That <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So you have had this amazing career, or I will say many amazing careers, working in the corporate realm, being an entrepreneur for 15 years. What is something that you are most excited about achieving within your professional or personal life? Oh, that's a great question. I've been mulling this over since you shared it with me before we jumped on. You know, I would say if I were to put this in the kind of the professional realm, it's professional slash personal. I'm really proud of the business that I've had the opportunity to build over the last 15 years. And sometimes as entrepreneurs, which I know you're one as well, it's um, because we're living in it every day. It's sometimes where we don't take a step back to just appreciate the opportunity in the business success that we've created and the personal success too. It's opened up so many doors for me personally and professionally. So I would say, like, just professionally speaking, it's just that having built the business that I've built, and I really look forward to, like, the future of continuing to do it. And where will it shift and evolve and change? The business that I have today isn't the business that I had 15 years ago. And if you and I have this conversation again in a, you know, a few years' time, it might look different again. And that's part of what makes it really exciting. Absolutely. I think that having a business is almost like marriage. You know, they say you have the honeymoon phase. <laughs> so you right. start and it's all good. <laughs> and then you start getting into the rough patch. And then you're like, okay, I'm over the moon again. Okay, we're, we're even keel. And it sounds like um, that you have gone through all of those transitions in your business. And you're really excited that this is a business that I can hang my hat on, that I can leave a legacy for my family and know that they will be proud of me because I'm proud of me. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I was thinking about what you had shared about loving to cook and chemistry. And there, there's so much of chemistry in cooking. And I'm going to be inviting myself over to your house the next time I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in your area. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you know, the funny thing is, if I take that story a step further and I talk about how we as leaders have to give back, my brother, when he graduated college, he actually came to live with me and my husband for probably about six months to a year. And I taught him to cook. And Aww. he is now a much better cook than I am. He even caters for people, right? And so it's like, this is the same thing we want to do as leaders. We want to learn something, get really good at it, and then share it with our team. And so I am more proud of him for how he cooks than me. I'm like, I'm going to your house on the weekends. <laughs> that is so cool. My, um, just a, a very short, funny aside. My youngest sister lived with my husband and I for a couple of years. She went to cosmetology school and she is a hairstylist. She owns her own business now as a hairstylist, and we live in the same area. And we were talking about this the other day, and we were just saying, you know, things may have turned out different if she did not take the opportunity to come down here and, and live with us, because we're both salespeople and business people, and you just teach those skills to the people that you're around, even if it's not only intentional. So I just, I love that we share that story, that type of story in common. That's awesome. We're both the oldest I have three younger brothers. <laughs> you have four younger sisters. I have oh three gosh. younger brothers, right? <laughs> so that is really it's awesome. that uh, big sister in us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> awesome. This has been amazing, Amy. What is the one best way that people can get in contact with you? I would say connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Amy Franco on LinkedIn. Everything is out there. You are welcome to connect with me. Let me know that you connected with me through Wesleyan's show. And uh, I always post resources out there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so, so much for sharing your time, your talent, and your expertise with us today. It has been amazing chatting with you. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. And I appreciate being invited on your show. Awesome. Well, guys, that was another episode of the Science of Selling STEM. Remember, in everything that you do, transform your sales. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Snack-Sized Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and leave us a review. Learn how to continue increasing your bottom line by getting simplified sales strategies delivered to your inbox weekly by going to www.snacksizedsales.com. Trust me, your bank account will grow and love you.